0: Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. The title of my message is Buried in Plain Sight. As you turn there, let me set the scene. Matthew 13 brings us into the experience of people grappling with life in a tenuous world. There are cultural and political forces that seem to threaten everything they have and everything they believe in on a daily basis. The religious fabric of their society, what has always given them a sense of order and stability, is fraying. Their religious leaders are divided and seem out of touch with the daily needs and burdens of the people. Life is hard and nobody seems to care. Into these troubling times comes a man. He's a man who says things that have never been said and does things that have never been done to back that up. At the center of what he says and does is a radical idea of a kingdom. But where is this kingdom and who is its king? As we come to chapter 13 in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is about to unload some big truth about the kingdom. But what he declares about the kingdom, he declares in parables. Parables are small stories Jesus told to highlight big truths. As Jesus explains in this chapter, he spoke in parables to reveal the secrets of the kingdom of heaven to those who were seeking it and hide the kingdom from those who weren't in other words everyone will hear his words but not everyone will get the truth now we are not all that different from the people Jesus is teaching we struggle with our place in a world that seems opposed to what matters to us we're Looking for answers. We're looking for change. We're vulnerable to voices that offer simple answers to complex problems. We need these parables of Jesus to reveal the kingdom to our own eyes. Now, there are seven kingdom parables crammed into this one chapter. We're going to focus on four small ones. We'll begin in verse 31, Matthew 13. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nest in the branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. And then skip down to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Before we jump into this, let us ask God... Open up His Word to our hearts. Heavenly Father, we stand before You aware of our need in this world for Your truth. I pray that today You would speak to us all through Your Word that we might know You better and understand Your purposes for us in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before we take a closer look at these parables, we need to ground ourselves in a basic understanding of the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God, or as Jesus describes it in this chapter, the kingdom of heaven? This is where you and I have an advantage over Jesus' audience here. We have the whole Bible to show us this kingdom, and the kingdom of God can be found from the very first chapter of Genesis to the very last chapter of Revelation and everywhere in between. Soon we're going to be starting a series in the Gospel of Luke where the kingdom of God is a major focus. So let me just place hold for that with a quote that will give us enough to consider our text today. Scholar George Eldon Ladd, who spent a lifetime studying the kingdom says this, our central thesis is that the kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of God, dynamically active to establish His rule among human beings, and that this kingdom, which will appear as an apocalyptic act at the end of the age, has already come in human history in the person and mission of Jesus to overcome evil, to deliver people from its power, and to bring them into the blessings of God's reign. The kingdom of God involves two great moments, fulfillment within history and consummation at the end of history. This is what Jesus is talking about when he preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, in Matthew 4 17. This is what Jesus told us to pray for Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in Matthew 6 9 and 10. This is what Jesus promised when he declared, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come, Matthew 24, 14. As Ladd concludes, it is precisely this background which provides the setting for the parables of the kingdom. Now, if you read this chapter in its entirety, you'll notice there are three longer parables. The parable of the soils or the sower, the parable of the weeds, and the parable of the net. These three parables, Jesus offers explanation as to what they mean. The longer parables warn us that there is a kingdom and you'd better not miss it. You don't want to be the barren soil. You don't want to be the weeds to be burned. And you don't want to be bad fish. The four little parables, the ones we've just read, don't have explanations, and they're not warnings, they're more like invitations. For those who have eyes to see, they tell us where to look, and for those who see, they tell us what to do with what we see. So I have three points today. Point one, where to look for the kingdom Point two, how to respond to the kingdom. And point three, a surprising case study of the kingdom. Point one, where to look for the kingdom. The first two parables teach us where to look for the kingdom. Let's go back to Matthew 13, 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, in all his parables, Jesus is using common experiences. In my imagination... The mustard tree is the size of a sequoia. My view of it is there's a tiny seed that produces a great sequoia that is magnificent for everyone to see. But that's not really the picture in view here. Most likely Jesus is referencing here is it's a familiar kind of mustard plant that grows up, you know, maybe, maybe 12 feet high. And when it grows, it looks like a tree. The key to this parable is not the tree or the size of the tree. The key is the seed. It's just one seed. In the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds, earlier in the chapter, the picture is a farmer scattering seeds in a field, hoping that some will come up and produce a crop. Here, There is just one seed that is sown into the ground carefully in one spot by the hand of someone who expects it to grow where it is planted. A mustard seed had properties, a mustard tree had properties that were valued in the time. It brought flavor into the home, and it also was used for medicinal purposes. It had healing properties. So the owner would plant one tree at the edge of a garden. One tree alone was enough. And comparing itself to everything else in that garden, it would tower over everything to the extent that birds would find shade from the desert sun in its branches. If you looked from the outside, if you looked from a distance and you saw the, the tree, you would know there was a garden there. Jesus wants us to see that the kingdom may look small at any point, But it will inevitably grow into something that is unmistakable and full of life. Just an aside no authentic work of God ever started big. The kingdom is not a TikTok trend, the kingdom of heaven does not go viral, it is not launched. It is carefully planted. It grows largely unseen. Do you look around your world and wonder if God is in charge? Do you look at your life and wonder if anything from God is actually growing there? Do your present circumstances look more like a wilderness Than a garden. In this parable, Jesus invites you to look beyond the barrenness for the mighty seed. It has been planted by God, and it's growing all the time. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like Leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. In ancient times, bread was a staple of life. It is what everyone depended on. So, using the metaphor of bread was not unusual. The picture in this parable is a woman making a big loaf of bread, enough to feed over a 100 people, a whole community from a very small bit of flour. This is bread for everyone, as much as you want, from a small bit of flour. The basic idea here is that it only takes a little leaven to make a lot of bread. Now leaven or yeast, and I'm getting beyond my real understanding here, but yeast is a living organism that actually feeds on flour in a process called fermentation. Once the leaven has done its work, where there was once just flour, there is now something entirely different. There is bread. The yeast hidden in the flour makes bread. The basic point of the parable is that the kingdom of heaven has been infused into the world and is working its way through so that in the end, no part of this world will not be transformed by it. Do you feel the influence of the world is overwhelming the influence of God? Then you're not seeing what Jesus tells you to see. The leaven is at work. The leaven of the kingdom is at work, and it will not stop until what is prophesied in Revelation eleven fifteen is fulfilled. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. There will never be anything bigger than the kingdom of God. And there is no place the kingdom will not be present. These are parables for those who are looking for the reign of God but cannot see it or often lose sight of it. Jesus' point is the kingdom is here and it's growing right now. Don't miss it. And if you've glimpsed it, even as you're here, hearing my voice, you have to decide what you're going to do about it. Which takes us to my second point, how to respond to the kingdom. The other two short parables are often treated as one because they make the same point from a slightly different angle. So in verse 44 we read, "...the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field." Now, to get this story, you have to consider a basic economic question. If I were living in Jesus' time and I had a great treasure, where would I keep it? There were no banks, there's no safes. What people did is literally bury their treasure somewhere on their property until they could figure out what to do with it. We see this represented a bit in the in the parable of the talents, where the man takes the, the talents that he's given, he doesn't know what to do with them, so he just buries them. He's actually doing what people would do when they couldn't figure out what to do with their money. They just buried it. Now, there are curiosities that Jesus doesn't address in this parable. You know, who, who buried this treasure? And does the owner of the field know about it? And What is this man doing in the field in the first place? All we know is a man is walking through a field that he doesn't own, he finds a treasure that he didn't earn, and he knows a good deal when he sees it. So the only way to acquire the treasure is to buy the whole field. Now Jesus doubles down on this idea of treasure in a similar story with a few key differences verse 45 again the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it Now the guy who finds the treasure in the field he wasn't looking for it he just stumbled across it the the merchant has been looking his whole life The guy in the field finds treasure where treasure shouldn't be expected the merchant identifies great treasure in a world of lesser lesser treasures what they have in common is how they respond to what they find now i know a little bit about hidden treasure a couple of years ago i was in ethiopia and i went with my friend josh pinnell to visit the tomb of the founder of modern Ethiopia, a man named Menelik II. If you know anything about me, you know I can't pass up looking where dead people are. So um, so we go to this shrine, and I'm looking there, and I'm looking around and say, this does not look that impressive. Why would they send us here? So a, a man comes up to us and said, would you like to see Menelik's tomb? I said, well, I kind of thought we were already looking at it. And he said, no, come with me. And he goes over and he reaches down and there are two doors in the floor that were hidden that he opens up. And there are stone steps that go down below the floor. And so he invites us down. So we walk down and at the bottom of the steps, it feels like a little bit like Indiana Jones. There, there are these tombs of all the royal family underground. And so I'm walking around taking selfies like I typically would. And, uh, and I'm there, and I turn a corner, and there is this painting, this odd European-looking kind of painting that's in a f- really old frame and it's kind of nailed up against the steps. I'd come down these steps, and I walk around, and I turn, and up against the bottom of the steps, there's this painting nailed against the wall. I think I have a picture of it here. Um, Yeah, that's me (laughs) and the painting. Um, So my guide says, hey, you know what? This is actually a Michelangelo. It was given to Menelik II by the Pope in the 1800s. And he says to me, this painting is probably worth more than a million dollars. But I knew something he didn't know. I knew that Michelangelo hardly ever painted on canvas. I knew that he did mostly statues, he sculpture and mostly frescoes like the Sistine Chapel. And that of 200 known Michelangelo artworks, only 10 of them are paintings on canvas. And I knew that the last painting on canvas from Michelangelo that sold sold for a tidy little four hundred and fifty million dollars. So I'm standing there, sitting there and I'm going, I have never been close to half a billion dollars in my life. <laughs> right? It takes your breath away. I kind of like check the frame to see if I could possibly get it and, and dash. <laughs> but I, for various reasons, some of them moral, I, just, I thought better of that idea. But the effect of being close to something of an incomprehensible value will stagger you. It staggered these men. It also changed their lives. They both made radical, life-altering decisions. They sold everything they had to get the one thing They valued most of all. One commentator has said, there is something about the kingdom of heaven which makes extravagant action the only proper response. You see, to receive the kingdom, you must let everything else go. That separates you from what is of true value. It presses upon you the reality of my understanding of value has to radically change. And whatever I have, I must let it go to get what I really want. The Apostle Paul told us it up like this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, but I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. When you come face to face with the greatest treasure imaginable, you can't just add it to what you have. You have to forsake what you have to get what you want. It's the economics of the kingdom. You cannot have both the kingdom and everything else you value. Jesus, now he did say, seek first the kingdom, and all these things that you need will be added to you. But first the kingdom, then everything else. Everything else, and then the kingdom will never work. You will not get the kingdom if you insist on keeping everything else while you get it. Why would you even do that? Missionary martyr Jim Elliot made it about as clear as it can be. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. To gain what he cannot lose. Now maybe you're here today and in your heart you're saying, I need to see more. I'm not convinced this kingdom has the kind of value you're talking about. Maybe you're here and you're just not interested in what you see. You feel like what you've got is good enough? I don't need the kingdom. Maybe you're here and you're saying, I'm willing to make room for the kingdom of my life, but I'm not really willing to give up everything to get it. How can I negotiate this? Can we compromise? Maybe you're just here and you're saying, you know what, I I think I need to think about it more. I need to count the cost. If that's where you are, then know this, you don't fully understand the value of what lies before you. As we turn the corner, let me offer you a surprising case study on the value of the kingdom you need to consider. Point three, a surprising case study of the kingdom. This case study is referenced in all four Gospels. We're going to engage it from the Gospel of Luke. The event happens at a hill outside Jerusalem called Golgotha. Where this man who was teaching these parables is dying on a cross. Next to him are two convicted criminals. We pick up the story in Luke 23. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation... And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, when we think of the burial of Jesus, we think it happened after His death in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But there was a cosmic burial of Jesus that actually happens on the cross. Jesus, in fact, was buried in plain sight. The goal of crucifixion was not just to stop him, was not not just to keep him from doing what he was doing, or even to punish him. The goal of of the crucifixion was to bury Jesus and everything he stood for, to heap so much shame and mockery and hate upon him that any thought of him would be wiped away forever. That was the intent of the crucifixion. And the thing they wanted to bury most was his kingship. Every gospel writer references the sign, King of the Jews, that Pilate hung mockingly over his head on the cross. John's gospel emphasizes that this sign was written in every language that could be read by anybody who was there. The cross is where the kingdom of Jesus was supposed to end. Even his friends knew that. As he gasped dying on the cross, their hopes for the kingdom died with him. See, they didn't remember the parable of the mustard seed. They didn't see that man hanging on the cross for who he really was. The seed of Adam. The seed of Abraham. The seed of David. The seed that Jesus himself said must die to produce life. Nobody saw that it was the Father himself who was burying the seed of redemption in the sins of humanity. Nobody saw the leaven of life working its way through the death of Jesus. Nobody there saw the treasure hidden on the cross. Nobody there noticed that in this horrible act, there was worth of inestimable value except one very unlikely man. A thief, dying next to Jesus on the cross. Somewhere in the struggle to breathe between this man has done nothing wrong and remember me when you come into your kingdom. This dying man sees that what is being buried is not a criminal but is in fact the king and the savior. This dying man spends all he has left to spend. All he's got left is his final breath and he spends it to get what Jesus came to give. It had never been a thought to him Until this very dying moment. And now this Jesus is all that matters. He makes the only request that makes any sense at that moment. What does he say? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, when you return as king to exercise your righteous vengeance, please spare me. What does Jesus say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, that's an astounding thing. To any Jew, even a criminal Jew, paradise only means one thing. It's the Garden of Eden. Jesus is telling him today, you will be with me in the Garden of Eden. The lost world, the garden of wholeness and peace and fullness that no one has seen since the beginning of time. What Jesus is inviting this man to see is that next to the cross, next to this tree of judgment, is in fact a garden. Theologian J.H. Bovink paints the picture for us like this. We again hear the burbling of the water of life. We again see the tree of life rising stately and high, loaded with God's promises. Paradise is the unspoiled world where the total harmony of all creatures entwines everything into intimate cohesion. Paradise is the kingdom as seen by God on the morning of creation when He saw all that He had made and behold, it was very good. That one sentence that Jesus spoke on the cross gives a wholly different meaning to the cross and everything taking place around it. Golgotha lies next to paradise. There is only an extremely thin curtain separating Calvary from paradise. That curtain has to be pierced. And then paradise opens up with unfathomable riches and glory. None of the mocking crowd notices it. Not even the disciples detect it. Only Jesus sees it. And that one murderer who is standing at the borderline between two worlds. Friend, there is a borderline between two worlds. Where do you stand? Where do you stand with Jesus? With this dying request, this simple trust in the king dying on a tree, a condemned man's ultimate destiny is transformed. In the words of the Apostle Paul, John, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Friend, if you think you are too far from God, there is a condemned man justly dying for his sins, telling you something different. There is a moment of breath that changes everything. If you see the value of what is offered and you're willing to give everything to receive it, if you will simply ask him, Jesus, everything I have, everything I've done, good and bad, I count as rubbish. I just want to know you. I just want to be with you. And I forsake it all. That I might live in your kingdom. That I might today or one day be with you in paradise. Brothers and sisters, this is why we exist. As a church, we inhabit a world bereft of awareness of the glorious kingdom of heaven. But we know the small seed is growing. We know the leaven is working. We know the treasure exists. And we know the worth of what we have. We see the garden from the cross. But all around us are people who don't. I want to close by praying as a congregation through a centuries-old prayer from the Valley of Vision for us as a church, that God might make us ones who share His kingdom and that it might be known through us. So let's all stand. It's going to be on the screen. We're just going to pray it together as close. Sovereign God, let's all say it together. Thy cause, not my own, engages my heart. And I appeal to thee with greatest freedom to set up thy kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify thyself and I shall rejoice. For to bring honor to thy name is my sole desire. I adore thee that thou art God. And long that others should know it, feel it, and rejoice in it. Oh, that all men might love and praise Thee, that Thou mightest have all glory from the intelligent world. Let sinners be brought to Thee for Thy dear name. To the reason I have reason, let everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight but thou canst accomplish great things, thy cause is thine, and it is to thy glory that men should be saved. Lord, use me as thou wilt, do with me what thou wilt, but oh, promote thy cause, let thy kingdom come, let the blessed be advanced in this world. Oh, do bring In great numbers to Jesus, let me see that glorious day and give me to grasp for multitudes of souls. Let me be willing to die to that end. And while I live, let me labor for Thee to the utmost of my strength, spending time profitably in this work, both in health and in weakness. It is thy cause and kingdom I long for, not my own. Oh, answer thou my request. Amen.